Hello, and thank you for joining us for our She Counts podcast. She Counts is a knowledge sharing and learning platform created to drive savings for low income women. I'm Adia Shea, your host, and I'm the Executive Vice President at Women's World Banking, a 40 year old global network of financial service providers. We've brought together institutions from around the world that are demonstrating best practices in driving savings for low income women. Through this series, you'll hear from the leaders of those institutions. You'll hear their personal stories, the work that they've been doing, and the learnings that they've instructed along the way. The hope is you'll find inspiration and learnings that you can apply in your journey to drive savings for low-income women. For this initiative, we thank the ExxonMobil Foundation for their funding support. ExxonMobil are promoting women as a catalyst for economic development. A few days ago, I spoke to my friend Puneet Gupta. Puneet is the co-founder of Kaleidofin in India. They were recently named as one of India's top 25 startups. Puneet joined me from his office in the bustling city of Chennai. Puneet is passionate about delivering financial services at scale, using the power of technology to really amplify the role financial services can play in the lives of customers. Puneet has spent a number of years on a number of different startups, including IFMR and the ICI Finance Bank. So Gladifin is, is, the, is the institution that we're most accustomed to. Great name, really interesting name. What does it mean? There's a little bit of a story around it. So Charita was trying to explain what are we going to do at Kaleidofin to her young daughter who was seven years old. And Sujita, that's your, your other co-founder, right? Yes, Sujita is a co-founder along with me. And when she told about the work that we wanted to do to help people meet their goals in life, she summarized it in one sentence, which was to say that, oh, so you're trying to make a rainbow world for people. And for a seven-year-old, rainbow world really meant a beautiful world full of colors. We basically went to Google, started to find something that connects to rainbow. A word that came out was kaleidoscope. We started to think that like kaleidoscope brings in things which are otherwise inane and combines it into really beautiful patterns. We thought that's really what we wanted to do as well. We wanted to bring together different financial products so that it creates beautiful outcomes for customers to help them meet real goals in life. That's basically what we started to think about. And I think that is one of the biggest inspirations for us in setting up Kaleidofin. I think we started to work towards a conclusion that most people don't really engage in financial services and products at all. It doesn't excite people at all. What excites people is meeting goals. Sometimes the goals could be really small, just something as small as owning a consumer durable. And I keep saying this on various forums that I'm still to see people who tweet about buying a financial product or Instagram it to say that, you know what, I bought insurance today. So for us, really, Kaleidofin is all about saying life has endless possibilities and what you really need to do is work towards them and Kaleidofin could be a partner. When I looked at Kaleidofin, that was the first time I saw an institution really putting the focus on the customer, but on the customer's goals and really taking this goal-based approach. That I found fascinating. Could you share any stories from that, with that approach? You know, all our work that we were doing in the past was like what typical financial services do. We have a product and we try to offer products to customers. 
So what we were trying to do was we tried to create a financial plan for customers. And if the plan recommended that the individual needs eight different types of financial products, and, and you know, the numbers sound quite large, but eight products for a customer might include different kinds of insurances, include health, life, accident, asset. But at the end of the day, eight products is a huge cognitive load on the customer. But also equally problematic was the sales process because the person who was selling also had to know each one of the production services well. And we did that for a very, very long time. We came across the work that one of our colleagues had worked on. What he did was he went to the field to write down customer stories. The stories basically talked about what were the kinds of things or events that happened in their life of the customers that made the customers happy and proud. And we started to hear stories of grit and determination, which talked about the fact that some customer lost their spouse and they had to bring up children alone and they borrowed money from a microfinance company. Through that, they were able to build an asset. And today, their children had a much better life. There were other stories of how somehow people made their business grow, in which case they had borrowed from people, friends, relatives. What made people really excited through these multiple stories was they were meeting a goal. They did always bring about an element of finance in it. A customer has many things to do and we broke it down further to create a connect. And we realized that meeting very specific objectives connected extremely well with the customer. It also gave the customer a context of saying, how does a solution that Kaleidofin offers to me relate to my life? So rather than looking at a household as a whole, we can start to look at household as a portfolio of goals that they have and how do we match them with the solutions that we can offer to them. And that's really what our goal-based approach is all about. So effectively, at the front end, you're understanding your customers' goals, and then you're building a package of solutions at the back end that all talk to meeting those goals. That's an approach that just makes so much more sense. Yes, absolutely. I, I remember a saying that said something along the lines of, savings is for the poor and investing is for the rich. Now, if you've got this package-based approach, how would you respond to a saying like that? Theoretically speaking, the relative value for investment and actually the right investment for a low-income household is much higher than that for a household who's anyway able to make a larger income. With the right financial planning and the right investment avenues, the marginal benefit that you offer to a low-income household by getting them to invest better is actually significantly higher. And, and we basically believe that Investment is for, is, is for everybody. I mean, that's a fantastic point that the, that the marginal benefit of investing is actually significantly greater if you're sat with a lower income than it would be if you sat at the upper income levels. And one of those points that unless you, you hear it, you wouldn't naturally jump or land on it. That's, that's fantastic. How we have looked at the entire piece of finance is we see finance as meeting very simple three functions. One of the basic function of finance is to help people move resources over time. So while you save or invest, you basically take money from today into future. When you borrow money, you bring your money from future into present. The second role of finance we see is moving money across states of life from moving money when you were in good health to moving money when you were not so well. And the last thing that we look at is moving money across geographies. And that roughly we put in as remittances slash payments as a, as a broad categorization. 
So that's the three functions of finance, really. So this is quite a new approach on the way you're thinking. Can you give me a view of some of the challenges that you've faced with this new approach? We started to think about ourselves as a neobank. We, we basically said that a customer today needs to go to a bank to do something, needs to go to an insurance company to do something else, needs to go to a mutual fund company to do something which is on, on a different pedestal here and also needs to approach a different player when it comes to things like remittances or payments. And from the life of a customer point of view, these are all pretty connected. So I think the first thing that we did was we started to think about saying that we need to be a single stop shop for the customer. And at the back end, we'll work with multiple providers. The second thing that we realized was, while it sounds very easy to say that these are the three roles for finance, but let's, let's take a view around just simply put pensions. If you are kind of trying to accumulate money for future, you're basically moving money across time, which means that you're saving now and you're going to use when you're not earning anymore. But at the same point of time, if you're not able to move money across states of life, which is from good health to times when you're not healthy, then what can really happen is in an event you have a medical emergency, you end up using your pool of pension to be able to finance a health emergency. And therefore, to be able to say that you are going to be able to decouple these two becomes harder and harder. And what we also realize for an informal sector customer, given the fact that income is not very regular, there is also a huge burden on the household just to manage their payments. So you're not making income for the next two months and you still have expenditures there. How do you make sure that you're able to make your regular payments, your school fee payments, does it require some kind of short-term mis liquidity mismatch to be addressed? And how can we do it in the most flexible manner? Uh, so our approach really in, all, in, in trying to get to this became that we will have to offer solutions which take into fa the fact that absence of one of these elements could create a stress on the other and, and therefore we need to address it more comprehensively. So you've got these three different uses of finances it seems to be resonating with your customers. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that, I think, was it in the first two years of operations, your customers had it saved, invested over a million dollars. You've got 28 institutional partners in 10 different states with over 50,000 customers. Yes, that is indeed correct. The customers have actually taken this quite well. This month, we are adding almost 20% to the customer growth. Uh, and this is a month-on-month -month growth. Now, some of this has started to happen because not only did our final customers get confidence, but some of the partners through whom we were trying to reach out to customers now have evaluated our solutions and have been now, I would say they are much more comfortable in taking solutions at scale to their own customers. When we began, we had a little bit of a slow growth because our partners also were evaluating and seeing if we were good for their customers. But as they got more comfortable, they've started to open more and more branches up for us to offer our solutions. So you talk about working with partners to, to access the customers. What types of partners are these and how are you accessing and reaching the, the end consumer? As we started to think about finances, we want to make sure that our costs were extremely low. Sometimes uh, if the cost to serve or if the cost to acquire customers becomes high, then the only solution that works is credit because that's where customers are able to pay the highest amount of margin. So what we wanted to 
to do was to make sure that both of these costs, cost of servicing and acquisition was low so that we could genuinely speaking, explore a full breadth of solutions without the need to necessarily put in credit at the forefront. And in order to do that, the most difficult thing was to make sure that customers are able to discover us. This became even more complicated because when we look at our database, we find that less than one in three customers own a smartphone at a household level. So for us, the big determinants of who would become a partner was, do you have a relationship with the customer? Do you have a touch point which is predictable and frequent? And the third thing that we did was because we were dealing with money, it is always helpful that the customer had some kind of a financial relationship or at least dealing with money relationship with this touch point. In line with this, we first reached out to microfinance companies. So in addition to offering credit to the customers, we were able to offer new banking services to the customers through them. Uh, some of our other partners include NGOs. We've been working also with the corporates. So we went to companies which employed uh, low-income employees and we started to speak to them about helping their employees to plan their finances better and hopefully in the process also kind of get better satisfaction from the current compensation that they're making. And we are now trying to see if we can reach out and work with banking correspondent companies. We are in conversation with cooperatives such as uh, dairy cooperatives and farmer producer organizations to once again use their networks to be able to reach out and bring in more and more customers. That's going to be quite a different conversation where you're on the one hand, you're talking to financial service providers. And on the other hand, it sounds like on the corporate, you're talking to employers of individuals. And how are they working, you know, relative to each other? Where are you seeing the different types of growth? How are those, is the, are those conversations different? And, and how does that impact what your, you know, how your, how your success and how your growth is going? So from a microfinance standpoint, it was my partner trying to bring in a customer and complete their suite of services with the customer. And therefore, the channel required us to convince the partner first that it was good for them to offer, as well as then the customer. With every partnership that we sign, we potentially add an engine which has millions of customers. On the corporate side, it was very different. The proposition was to go to a corporate and tell them that this is good for their employees. And if an employee starts to see that they are saving money from their current compensation, it will start to impact their satisfaction a lot more. And that hopefully should help you in retaining the customers. What it also meant was, on the other hand, was that with every company that we add, even if the company was large, we were still talking about hundreds or thousands of employees to be onboarded in, into our system as opposed to millions. From a touch point perspective, the companies don't want to see themselves recommending financial solutions because they don't want to take liability. So a lot of the role that happens is at the corporate level is introduction to the employees. Okay. And then our engagement with the employees is much more like a direct to customer engagement. Switching across, Benit, I recall on the application form for Women's World Banking and you joined us uh, towards the tail end of last year. One of the, the elements that came out was that in both Kaleidofin and IFMR, you'd not previously joined any national or international network associations. What was it about Women's World Banking that sort of resonated with you and made you sort of take that little that leap and actually join uh, Women's World Banking? 
As we started to work with Women's World Banking, I think what we found was that Women's World Banking wasn't kind of seen as a very, very exclusive network to say that if you work with us, you can't work with anybody else. In fact, the entire thing that resonated with us was an equally open environment to say that we need to learn from everybody and see how can we deliver greater value to, to our customers. That's great to hear. Again, when we saw what you were doing, it just made a lot of sense to try and try and bring you into the, the program. And so with SheCounts, if you look at some of the things that you, that you do, and particularly with our focus on women, how have you incorporated the savings behaviors of women into your offering? Two or three ideas that I've taken away with me from the, the SheCounts program, and we've been trying to build on top of those ideas. One was really around all of the work that Matt and Tyne was doing. So how do you start to look at different kinds of informal ways in which customers save? And is there a way for us to learn from those informal mechanisms and start to build solutions which customers can relate to their own experiences? The second thing that we uh, have been following up on has been to understand how entities like Card Bank were successfully able to weave in the processes which were connected to collection of savings and investments from customers along with their credit operations. The third thing that I kind of walked away was um, around the entire experience of starting to see how do you create discipline around savings and how do you connect that with credit? We, we learned a lot from Banco W uh, based out of Colombia and the work that they were doing on trying to bundle savings along with the credit payments and how the work that they were doing was helping them build corpuses for individuals, which otherwise individuals find very hard to put together. That's great to hear because with SheCounts, what we're really trying to do is enable our network members to extract best practice learnings from each other and really take those forward. Now, sticking with your time in Singapore, we asked you to share some of the things that kept you awake at night. And I recall you talked about how do entities design for women customers, how to create scalable training designs. You also talked about how digital players can help their customers discover what's on offer. And the final piece was how do entities, especially those engaged in offering savings, keep the cost of servicing their customers low. Are those still the things that keep you up at night? The problem that we've been able to address has been scalable training. Other than that, I would say very much these are problems that we continue to fuss over. So, so what have you done in the, in the scalable training side? The first level of training is something that you offer to our employees and agents. And I think that was something that we were getting to a grip of it. But one training program is not really sufficient. You need to do refresher trainings. You need to make sure that if employees or agents were making certain kinds of mistakes, we had an ability to be able to offer training so that those mistakes were reducing. What we ended up doing is that we started to use technology to understand what were the common mistakes that people were making. We broke down our training program into micro modules of three to five minutes each. Now, these three to five minute training programs could be taken up by them when they're waiting for a customer, when they're waiting for something else, when they're waiting for a bus, it's actually a very easy to deliver training program. We can give different people different types of training modules based on our assessment of 
what is going wrong on the basis of our backend databases. A lot of employees and agents end up doing these training programs and we can straight away see the improvement in quality on account of free. This has been great. We've had a fantastic conversation about the history. We've talked about the learnings. We've talked about some of the things that we've taken away from She Counts and the things that have kept you up at night and some of the fabulous progress you're making, uh, particularly in the, in the modular-based training approach. I'm looking forward now. What are you most excited about in future developments at Clarifying, particularly for your goal-based approach and for your women clients? In the coming months, we're actually launching far more complex solutions for customers. So we are launching, for example, a specific education-based solution. We are launching now a very specific maternity benefit solution. And we are launching a very specific credit link solution for a customer. All of these solutions should be very easy to understand for a customer um, as well as for the team who's selling them. The second thing that we, that we feel very excited about is to start to see how do we extend this to more and more channels without necessarily having to build very large teams to be able to deliver for each channel. That's great. Um, so if you don't mind, I've, I've got two more questions for you. And the first is, if you had one piece of advice really on how to make savings work for women, what would that be? One, it needs to be done without any judgment to the goals of the customer. Um, I think one of the big things that we make as a mistake as a provider is to undermine the use case that our customers might have. So I think one of the big things that we try to keep in mind always is that if it's an important goal for the customer, it is, it is important. The second thing around the entire work around, around savings is that we have to think about this from the point of how is it going to work within the life of the customer? If we were not there, what would be the options that the customer would have explored? And is there a way in which the solutions that we offer start to build on the customer's natural responses? And then the second request, the second question is, is purely selfish from the head of the network. I can just imagine so many of our network members would love to connect with you and really talk to you uh, about your learnings and really you know, pick your brains. Are you open for us to to make those connections? Oh, absolutely. I think the, the big benefit when we joined the Women's World Banking was very much to say that as a network member, if we have an expectation to go and speak to members and learn from them, we should be equally open to the idea of the fact that entities would want to come and learn from us. Oh, fantastic. And I, and I thank you in advance for that. And, and thank you also, Panit, for, for spending uh, such a, lot, a large part of your evening with us. Thank you so much for inviting us. This was an amazing conversation and pleasure was daily online. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the She Counts podcast. Our team includes Hill Laxon, Freya Ishan, and our producer, Jessica Bodyford. If you want to know more, please visit our website at womensworldbanking.org. Let us know what you took away from this episode by commenting on iTunes or wherever you enjoy your podcast. Join us for the next episode and together... Let us make savings work for women because she counts.